0: from God's inspired word of God, God's word to us today. It may not look as if it is, it's a long list, but it is God's inspired word. So, let's go. Are we ready? No criticism of my um, pronunciation, please. And every so often I'll tell you what verse we've got to in case you've got lost. I might have. Right. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Josiah, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigvai, Rehem, and Barna. The list of the men of the people of Israel, so remember there's lots of people in their families as well, the descendants of Parosh were 2,172, of Shephatiah 372, of Ara 775, of Pahath Moab through the line of Jeshua and Joab 2,812, of Elam 1,254, of Zatu 945, of Zakkai 760, of Bani 642, of Bebai 623. Of Asgad, 1,222. Of Adonaikum, 666. Of Bigvi, 2,056. Of Adin, 454. Of Atar through Hezekiah, 98. Of Bezai, 323. Of Jura, 112. Of Hashem, 223. Of Gibar, 95. Right, so now we move on to places, okay? So these are not just individual families. This is where people came from. <clears throat> Verse 21. The men of Bethlehem, 123. Of Netufah, 56. Of Anathoth, 128. Of Asmaveth, 42. Of Kiriath-Jerim, Kephira and Biroth, 743. Of Rama and Giba, 621. Of Mikmash, 122. Of Beth and Ai, 223 of Nebo, 52, of Magbish, 156, of the other Elam, 1,254, of Harim, 320, of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725, of Jericho, 345, of Senas, 3,630. 3, so we're back to people now, different categories of, pe- of people. So we're at verse 36. The priests... The descendants of Jediah through the family of Jeshua, 973, of Imma, 1052, of Pashur, 1247, of Harim, 1017. The Levites, the descendants of Jeshua and Cadmiel of the line of Hodaviah, 74. The musicians, the descendants of Asaph. The gatekeepers of the temple, the descendants of Shalom, Atta, Talmon, Akub, Hatita, and Shobai, 139. The temple servants, the descendants of Zihar, Hasufa, Tabayath, Keroth, Shiha, Paden, Lebanon, Hegebar, Akub, Hagab, Shalmai, Hanan, Gedel, Gehar, Rehai, Rezin, Nekoda, Gazim, Azah, Paziah, Besai, Aznar, Meonim, Nefissim. Bakba, Hakufa, HaHa, Basluth, Mahida, Haja, Bakos, Sisera, Timar, Neziah, and Hatifah. another group of people, um, starting at verse 55. The descendants of the servants of Solomon, the descendants of Sotai, Hasophereth, Peruda, Jala, Darkon, Giddle, Shephatiah, Hatil, Pokruth, Hazabayim, and Ami. The Temple Servants and Descendants of the Servants of Solomon, 392. The following came up from the towns of Tel-Mela, Tel-Hasha, Kerob, Aden and Imma, but they couldn't show that their families were descended from Israel. The Descendants of Deliah, Tobiah and Nakoda, 652. And from among the priests the descendants of Habaya, Hakos, and Barzillai, a man who had married a daughter of Barzillai, the Gideolite, and was called by that name. These searched for their family records, but they couldn't find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering the Urim and Thurim. The whole company numbered 42,360. Besides their 737 male and female slaves. They also had 200 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work. 61,000 darics, 500 kilograms, of gold, 5,000 minas, 2.8 tons of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests and the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns, and they had no idea that 2,000 years later we at Stapleford would be reading their names.
1: (laughs) When David, uh, our pastor, saw this passage that i have been given to preach on this morning, he said I could be excused. It's not exactly the go-to passage for a preacher. Uh, But my view was that the preacher had got an easier job than the person who was going to have to read the passage. (laughs) So well done, Eunice, for charging through uh, without fault... Around uh, 130 strange names, Uh, or at least we've no way of knowing whether she got them wrong or right, don't we? (coughs) Well, recapping a bit on David's introduction last week, I've put together this timeline of the years when the Jews were exiled and what followed. So I put the kings at the top, and the different uh, countries, Babylon and Persia, and the dates are over about 200 years, from 600 to 400 BC or thereabouts. Now, the king of Judea was threatened by the Babylonians in 605 BC, and he was forced to send some of his best people to serve in Babylon. Eight years later. Uh, The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar returned in force, conquered Jerusalem, and carried off many more Jews uh, into Babylon, into exile. Uh, He put a puppet king, a Jew, but a puppet king in place, uh, who, after a few years, foolishly tried to gain some independence. But the Babylonians were having none of that, and they returned in force, uh, destroyed Jerusalem, They killed many of the uh, Jews living there and carried off the survivors to Babylon in 587 BC. But the Babylonians, as we heard last week, weren't invincible. 48 years later, uh, the Persians conquered Babylon itself. God installed the Persian king Cyrus, who we heard about last week, and prompted Cyrus to instruct those Jews who wanted to to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So about three years after Cyrus conquered Babylon, some exiles returned to uh, Judea, as we read today in chapter two and verse two, in company with Zerubbabel. Now, can you spot God's mercy? He's had to use these Babylonians (coughs) to punish the Jews for their rebelliousness. You can read all about that in the previous books of the Bible. But in this chapter, we see God leading some of them back into his kingdom. Some of the exiles will have been born in Babylon and only know about Judea from their parents. But amongst them will be some of those who were exiled for their rebellion. And their attitude to God, as we'll see, has completely changed. They've repented, and God in his mercy has made it possible for them to be restored. God is restoring his people to worship and to serve him in the way that they should. It may take a long time. You'd have to wait another 80 years for Ezra to arrive himself, but restoration is going to be achieved, God is in charge of the future, and at his centre is his restoring work to his timetable. The temple will be restored a few years later. God hasn't changed. That's the good news for today. He's still restoring his people to his timetable. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> Sorry, he, He's still leading his people to repent to change their attitude towards him. And I know that there are many of you here this morning who can say, God changed my attitude. I repented. I'm being restored. It's the same, even though we're two and a half thousand years later. Maybe that's not you. But there again, maybe God just hasn't finished with you yet. Well, Okay. I want to cover two main points this two main points this morning. And the first is this, God is unfolding the future and he can't be stopped. God is unfolding the future and he can't be stopped. We know from the book of Haggai that about 519 BC uh, Zerubbabel was, oh, sorry. Skip there. The rubber ball. Uh, it becomes is a governor. That's as you see a few years later than Ezra chapter two. But it seems that in Ezra chapter two that he wasn't a governor at this point. At that time, Sheshbazzar was governor. You can see that back in chapter one and verse eight. Probably Sheshbazzar was the. Uh, already governor of Judea, when Cyrus issued his proclamation. Cyrus charged him with organising the rebuilding and making sure all the valuable items listed in chapter 1 got back to Jerusalem. So we had Zerubbabel and now we've got Shezbazar. These are key people. This man, Shezbazar, uh, could have been a challenge to returning Jews Uh, but God has arranged a leader who wasn't too self-important. You can see that from verse 63. He recognizes the authority of God's priesthood, even though his name suggests that he wasn't a Jew himself and probably, therefore, not a worshipper of God. But he's very sympathetic to the Jewish rules and regulations. You look down in verse 63 and you see what he says. So there's Bazaar governor of Judah, while Zerubbabel is the leader of the returning Jews and, as we've seen, would become a governor himself at some point. It's possible that Zerubbabel was already some sort of co-governor working together, but whatever his uh, particular role at this point, it's clear that he had great leadership skills and they, would, they were already or would soon be recognized by the Persian authorities. We know something else important about Zerubbabel as well. Uh, You'd have to turn over to Matthew in chapter one, uh, another long list of people's names, just in case you haven't had enough already this morning. And we discover that Zerubbabel was grandson of the last Judean king, Jehoiachin. God had planned all this a long time ago and he's now unfolding his plan. He's putting a helpful provincial governor in place and he's providing a perfectly qualified Jewish leader with both Persian and Jewish authority. God is putting precisely the right people in right place at the right time. And what about the religious leader? Well, that's Jeshua or Joshua. He's named in verse 2 and he brings with him a large number of priests and Levites. You can see those in verses 36 to 40 now jeshua is the son of josadak you could find that out by turning over to chapter 3 and verse 2 and we know uh, that josadak was the son of sariah you'd have to go back to 1, Chron- uh, 1 chronicles chapter 6 to find that out and uh, sariah was the chief priest when jerusalem was destroyed by the babylonians So this is not any old priest that is being drawn out of captivity and uh, coming back to Jerusalem. This is not a flaky stand-in for the real priesthood. This is the guy directly in line. This is God setting apart for himself a key man to do his will at the key time. I doubt that it was very evident when the exiles left Babylon But hidden away, God is weaving together the right government, the right organisation and the right leadership. Physical, political and spiritual. Now, let's look at that list of Jews listed in verses 3 to 20 that Eunice read out and I'm not going to repeat. In Judean culture... Names are linked with the character of a person. So we can have a good stab at the kind of people these guys were. Now, uh, they're sort of supporting roles if you like to think of it that way. There are descendants of a man called the flea. Okay. Uh, Someone else is called God has judged. Another is called my Lord has risen. Another is called voluptuous. And finally, we've got (laughs) big nose. They're a mixed bag. Some are well off and have got servants. You can see that from verse 65 later on. Others aren't and don't. It's definitely not a tightly organised and select squad of trained colonisers. They're no well-oiled machine which is ready to resettle the land. What hope is there for them? Well, maybe sheer weight of numbers. What do you think will overcome their inadequacies? There's almost 50,000 of them, as you can read in uh, verse 64. That's a decent number, isn't it? Well, just to give you some sort of flavour of what that is, it's less than twice the combined population of Sandacre and Stapleford and neither of those are very big towns, are they? Uh, And they're going to settle into an area which is uh, about twice as big as... uh, Sorry, about the size of Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire combined. So they're going to be pretty spread out. (coughs) Uh, And that's a land where there are already some people living who uh, aren't going to be friendly, very friendly to them. We'll find that out later when we get to chapter 4. They're going to do their best to stop the Jews becoming settled. It's really not very uh, realistic to expect these guys to raise a new Jerusalem and a new Judea from the ashes of the old. It's a tall order. But wait a minute. Take note of their leaders listed in verse 2 <clears throat> there's 11 of them listed <clears throat> actually we know that there are 12 by comparison with chapter 7 of the bible book of nehemiah uh, there are 12 in all so not only has god got shes zerubbabel and jeshua lined up to get his work going he's lined up 12 leaders and that's a hugely significant number for these returnees from Babylon. You remember there were 12 tribes in the Old Testament who'd come out of Egypt into the Promised Land, each with a leader. And now there are 12 leaders to restart the country. God is announcing that his people will be reestablished in his land. Even though it doesn't look very credible, God is declaring, by putting these 12 leaders in place, that it's going to happen. Now this returning party of about 50,000 people, a bit less, might seem to be a pretty flaky collection of odd bods. And in many ways, that's not a bad description of them. But you see, there's a greater reality than what what appears on the surface. I think this is an example of what is written in the Bible book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, You can find it in chapter 1, verse 27 and following. Half a millennium later, and uh, Paul writes, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It wasn't Zerubbabel who was going to re-establish Judea, reconstruct Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It wasn't the 12 leaders. It wasn't Jeshua, the high priest. It wasn't the 50,000 odd people. It was God himself. Oh, he would use these people, for sure. And others not yet arrived. But God is announcing his unstoppable purpose. And he's putting together the people he's chosen to achieve that purpose. A rum lot, though they may appear. And God is still rebuilding his kingdom in the world, in the UK, in Stapleford. And he's chosen a rum lot of people to do it. People like you and like me. People who don't seem suitable. He has chosen you to shame the wise and the strong as you rely upon him. Christian, you are the right person in God's plan, even though it doesn't seem like it by any normal method of assessment. And God also has his key people in the right place, even though some of them don't even worship God. Be encouraged, God is at work. And one more thing to notice, these 12 leaders don't represent the previous 12 tribes. Check out chapter 1 and verse 5. They were mostly, or entirely, from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Not from all 12 tribes, just from two of them. God is announcing the establishment of new arrangements. He's putting right what was wrong, not by repair, but by renewal. Yet it is striking striking in this restoration of its incompleteness. Only four of the 24 priestly families are listed in verses 36 to 39. We know there are 24, if you look back earlier in the Bible, where were members of the other 20 families. Maybe three were represented by the unproven priests listed in verse 61. But even so, that still leaves 17 families unrepresented. And why are there so few Levites? These were the helpers in God's temple. In the book of Numbers, uh, when the system was started, there were three priests and about 22,000 Levites. Uh, uh, Now, uh, later, There are about 350 priests and about maybe 50,000 Levites. Now, there are almost 4,300 priests listed in verses 36 to 39, but only about 540 Levites in verses 40 to 54. It's back to front. Had God sinned out the rebellious Levites during the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile? Or were the Levites reluctant to return? I don't know. And what about the 5,400 articles to support worship which were listed towards the end of chapter 1? They, they only do one, well, I do several things, but one of the key things they do is to highlight the fact that the chief object isn't there. There's no Ark of the Covenant. See, God's restoration is very good but it's incomplete and why is that it's because it's being overtaken by complete renewal for those exiles who had repented and really wanted to worship him he's beginning to reveal a totally new way of worship one that will not be centered on a box in a holy room in a temple on a hill but on the saving work of jesus christ The man who is God, who died on a cross. The old is gone, and the new is coming. And we are in a position to shout, hallelujah. Christ has died and is alive forever and ever. We and Jesus Christ are set to inhabit the new Jerusalem. Perfect in every way. And here you've got the first glimpse of that in chapter 2 of Ezra. So it's incomplete restoration because there's something better. Right, sorry, I've got carried away and didn't kick my slides up with me. Sorry about that. Let's get to the second point then. God's people seek God's future and won't be stopped. So the first point was God is unfolding the future and can't be stopped. And secondly, God's people seek God's future and won't be stopped. The returnees from Babylon, though few in number and a mixed bunch, showed a spiritual seriousness about their return to the land of Judah. God's promises in the Old Testament were associated with the place. It was described by God as a land flowing with milk and honey. God had given it to them as their permanent residence. He promised that if they followed his commands, they would be successful there, crops would grow, animals and humans would thrive... Uh, The rain would come at the right time for all that. So to return to the land was to these Jews a critical part of receiving God's blessing. So what skills did this bunch of misfits have? You might have expected to see a list of stonemasons, carpenters, house builders, well diggers, land clearers, and so on. I'm sure that such people were there But they're not identified in this list that we read in chapter 2. The list doesn't define a work party to rebuild things. Instead, it points out all the key people needed to restart the worship of God. Priests, singers, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants. Almost one in ten of these people returning are identified by their roles in enabling everybody else to worship God. Certainly, the more than 4,500 temple-based people would get involved in rebuilding, planting crops, and the offence. But that's not their principal duty. That's not what they're listed for. Now imagine, you're going to walk about 500 miles over many weeks from Babylon back to Judea, and when you get there, you're going to undertake some major building restoration work in a land which has become derelict. Now, I wonder whether... uh, Paul, where are you? Would you like to stand up for a minute? And Lydia, over here? Okay, All right. Now, imagine, right? That's what you're going to do. Who are you going to take with you? Are you going to take Lydia the singer or Paul the builder? All right, thanks, guys. You can sit down. (laughs) Have you watched one of those building restoration programmes on TV? Have you spotted the church choir in them? (laughs) No. Okay. You see, the person who assembled this list aims that we'll understand that God has restored and renewed these exiled souls before they ever set out. He's given them different priorities. At the top of their list is the worship of God. Even though they've got mammoth problems in front of them, Above it all is their desire to worship God. Consider your own life. Where does worship and service of God feature in relative importance in your life? What priorities has God given you? It's possible, you know, that uh, in Babylon was the place where the Jews first started worshipping in synagogues. Because of the temple wasn't available to them after all. It had been destroyed and they were in a different country. Uh, By his proclamation in chapter 1, Cyrus gave permission for any of them who wanted to, to return to Jerusalem. But less than 50,000 took up the invitation, even though there were certainly many more than that in the Persian Empire. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus wrote that many remained in Babylon being unwilling to leave their possessions. A tablet unearthed about 150 years ago uh, in Babylon uh, described a Jew called Murashu and his sons. Uh, It describes them as wealthy bankers who would loan almost anything to anyone rich enough to pay. It didn't matter whether you were a Jew or a Babylonian. And there wasn't going to be much business like that, was there, in Jerusalem. So for some, maybe many, Staying in Babylon was more attractive, a safer bet, than responding to God's prompts and then having to face difficulties, hostility and hard work in Judea. Some heard God's promptings and responded. Others heard the same message through Cyrus and stayed put. And you know, we, you and I are often faced by God's promptings. <coughs> Maybe you know God's prompting you in some way at the moment we've got to respond when god prompts even if his prompting seems to lead somewhere disagreeable don't be unwilling don't stay behind for god leads to a place of promise and of blessing so for those who did return we conclude that it wasn't principally to escape from the nasty babylonians and the occupying uh, persians These returnees' primary motivation wasn't because they wanted to escape from captivity, but because they desperately wanted to worship God in the way and in the place that God had prescribed. They weren't satisfied with the modified worship which had had to be invented in Babylon. Their desire was to worship God in the way he wanted, not the way that they could manage with. So their first stop Their first stop, when they got back, was the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. It's the white blob in the middle. That was their target. Not a home, not farmland. That came later, you can see it in verse 70. Their priority was to worship God. It's the same in verses 61 to 63, where some people couldn't prove their status as priests so they wouldn't be able to act as priests. Yet they didn't try and bend the rules. They were prepared to wait until things could be sorted out. Upholding God's standard of holiness was more important than their rights. Whatever way you turn in this chapter, you see that the returnees had an overwhelming desire to worship God and to do that in the way that he wanted, not in the way they could get away with, not in the way that was convenient to them. They trusted God that, as they sought to follow his prompting, he would enable them to worship as they should. And that's a question we all need to answer ourselves, isn't it? Is the manner, the place, the time I spend worshipping and serving God chosen because it's convenient or because it's what he wants from me? God honoured the commitment of these returning exiles He led each of them back to their own towns, many of which are described in verses 21 to 35. In fact, it's striking that this chapter uh, emphasises this both at the start in verse one and at the end in verse 70. I think it's it's an indication that God will honour you and I as we worship and serve him as he asks of us. And just one more thing about these returning exiles. Many put their bank accounts where their souls were. In verses 68 to 69, we read that some of them freely gave half a tonne of gold and almost three tonnes of silver to pay for the temple rebuilding and to equip it with sacred objects. That's two to three gold rings and a small silver cup for each person, including the poorest servant and child. Some apparently didn't give from what we read in, in the verse. <clears throat> but some must have given a lot more than average. They gave because they wanted to give, and they wanted to give because God had given them so, for, so much. From our perspective, it probably doesn't look as though they had very much. Verse 66 tells us they had one animal for every six or seven people, which wasn't much for a people who would be living off the land but it was much more than the nothing that they'd had when they'd been forced into exile. And they wanted to express their thanks as generously as they could. Surely though, wouldn't they need all this money? They'd need to build or reconstruct houses to live in when they got to uh, their, their home towns. They'd face many building costs. Their belongings were only what they could carry with them. There would be all sorts of costs associated with setting up homes and farms in a place which they hadn't been to for years and years, or perhaps never been to. Yet they gave generously to God's work. Verse 69 puts it this way. It says, according to their ability they gave. Their needs didn't prevent their generosity. They judged generous, generosity to be within their ability. They felt able to be generous, even though they had many expenses in view. How do you and I compare? I doubt that many of us have as little as these people did. Certainly, we have calls on our resources, on our time, on our money, on our energy. But how much do we use these as reasons not to give our money, our time and our energy in God's service? Is our starting point in our heads I can't give because, series of reasons. Or is it like these returning exiles? Let's see how much I can give. Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth and he said, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very, serious, very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability it's in 2 Corinthians 8 you'll find that the Macedonians went even further than the exiles of Ezra chapter 2 uh, they wanted to give and some of them gave too much are you and I more in, more in danger of giving too much or too little Let me draw some conclusions. God is unfolding a future. It's of his design and it's to his timetable. There are many things about that future that we, his followers, know nothing about. We can't see how he is knitting the future together, nor how it will turn out like the exiles must have thought when they were in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar, it may seem that it's going to be a complete mess. Even when it seems like a corner has been turned, as it must have seemed to many when Cyrus gave his proclamation, the future can be equally or even more full of concerns. These are times we need to have the same attitude as these returnees of Ezra chapter 2 to follow his prompting and to support his work according to the ability that he has graciously equipped us with. To make our worship and our service of God our priority with our time, our energy, our money, and most of all, with our love. And the reason? Because God is changing us individually and together, building a people renewed and perfected at the cross of our glorious saviour jesus christ so let's make our last song this morning our resolution to him to trust him in everything to follow his prompting and to worship and serve him wholeheartedly amen